Rant and Rave is brought to you by Andrews Technology Group. Make sure you hit them up at A-N-D-R-E-W-S Technology Group.com. DJs, promoters, small business owners, get your technology and website needs met. Hey, Soka lovers, it's Soka Say So. And this Kit. And we're back with episode seven of the special limited series. We have a collection of interviews from people around the world talking about the global Black Lives Matter movement. In this episode, we are talking to Lonnie Scretner, who is from Edina, Minnesota, a suburb right outside of Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered, who is currently residing in Billy's. We get her take on what it was like to be a U.S. history teacher in Minnesota and how the high school slowly started to desegregate. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Lonnie Scretner from Minnesota, currently living off of the coast of Belize, um, working in education, obviously with a U.S. history background, but now helping one of the poorest schools on the island and sponsoring children all the way through, you know, till higher education and beyond. So we know each other um, through my involvement in the ABC program in Edina, Minnesota. Um, And you were a teacher at the high school. But now, I mean, you've gone beyond and you were working with ABC even before I got there in 93. Yep, I'm dating myself on the podcast. Um, (laughs) Before I got there in 93. Why did you get involved with it? How did you get involved with the A Better Chance program? Um, what did you find valuable that you said, yes, this is something I need to start really working working with? Okay. Um, I didn't know that A Better Chance existed, and I didn't know that there was a chapter in Edina when I started teaching at Edina High School in 1986. Um The following year, when I started teaching advanced placement U.S. history, I had a class with three young women in it, um, three young women of color, which at that point was extremely unusual in Edina High School. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, they clung together very carefully. I mean, they were, uh, they obviously felt like the odd person out. And yet they were juniors at the school. They would have been there already for one full year when they walked into my classroom. And I was so impressed with their, well, their everything, their intelligence, their commitment to education. And as I got to know them and I learned that they lived together in this A Better Chance house, um, and then I left Edina for several years and I taught out in Osseo, Minnesota. And then in the fall of 94, while you were at the school, I returned to teaching at Edina and stayed there until the end of my career. When we were there, you know, we, we were it, right? We were, we were the yes. best students. There might have been one or two other ones. Um, but because we were all connected, we all lived in the house. We had Asian, uh, Latina, uh, Black, 
and we were all living together. So when we were in the high school, when we were at Edina High School, we really stood out because we were kind of clumped together, first of all. But then we, you know, we were the others. <laughs> there was yes, there was and- a lot of a lot of pressure to um there was almost like no way to to fully fit in, but there was a lot of pressure to still find your group because there were the jocks, there were the artsy people, there were, you know, high school. Uh, Yeah. And and there's a niche for everybody. And it's, it's hard for anybody to find the correct niche. Um, The other thing that has changed Edina high school um, in, hmm, wow, late nineties, after you graduated, there were several school districts that were part of an out-of-court NAACP lawsuit settlement about segregation. Hmm. And the agreement was that these districts, including Edina, and it depended on the size of the district, but for Edina, it meant that every year for, I think it was seven years, we committed to opening 70 seats, K-12, two students from Minneapolis, based not on color, but on socioeconomics, on free and reduced lunch, Hmm. which meant that most of the students who took advantage were um, students of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hard and to so, use the same economic class as Edina students. Right. And students came into that program sort of at any stage of their school career. I mean, we and and what the state did, the state's commitment was that they would provide transportation. So unlike open enrollment, where parents had to get the kids to whatever school they enrolled them in. In this case, there were bus routes that were paid for by the state of Minnesota as part of this out-of-court settlement. And so there was, it was called, and the program ironically was called The Choice is Yours. And I I have a little story to go with that, but there were these buses that would bring the kids and there was, um, there were two buses in the morning, an early and an often late bus. And then there were two buses after school, one that left when the bell rang, and one that was more like an activity bus so that the students could stay after school. Hmm. Um, and at that point in time, part of my job at the high school was as the gifted resource teacher. And... I, be, I took some training about identifying giftedness in poverty because almost all the tests that they use to identify gifted kids are prejudicial in nature. They're based on white culture, pure and simple. And so I wanted to get to know those choices, yours kids. And they ate lunch together in the YSY room, Youth Serving Youth. And, you know, they kind of hid in there. You know, that book, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? Mm-hmm. These kids didn't even sit together in the cafeteria. They were, you know, they went and found another place where they were eating was allowed. And I arranged to meet with them one day. 
and it was a very interesting meeting. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to know, firstly, why were they there? Why had they decided, <clears throat> excuse me, to take advantage of this program? And I said, the program is called The Choice is Yours. I said, why did you choose to come? And this young man in the back burst out laughing and he said, right. He said, the choice is yours. The choice is your mama's. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and they all kind of laughed and I laughed and I said, I get it. I said, what you may not realize is that there are lots of kids here in Edina who feel the same way, whose parents have been able to afford to buy houses here and they bought them here because of the schools. And, and so we had a very interesting, and I had already gotten at that point, a grant from the Southern Poverty Law Center to buy U.S. history books written from the African-American perspective. Wow. And I had a, a set of one that were written at the ninth grade reading level and another set that were college texts. And what I wanted to do was to run a class during lunch hour and invite those kids to come and invite my regular A-push kids to come so that I would have an integrated class. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said to these Choices Yours kids, and there were probably, oh, at that point, maybe 20 or 25 of them. And I said, if I were to do this, would you be willing to not really give up your lunch hour, but instead of bringing your lunch here, would you bring it and eat it in in my classroom? And we would do this class. And there was this absolute silence in front of me. And I'm not sure I've ever been more uncomfortable in my career. I thought, oh, my God. They're just going to shut this little old white lady down, and that's going to be the end of it. (laughs) Um, And finally, one young woman raised her hand, and she looked at me very quizzically, shall we say, and she said, you do that for us? And I said, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And... A whole bunch of them said, well, yeah, we come. I was like, all right. And so we started the next week. And I think there were about probably 10 or 12 of them who didn't give up. And the first day they came, I showed them the books. And I said, you get to pick the book. I said, I'll tell you, this one is hard to read. I said, it's college level text. I said, this one's much easier to read. I said, they're basically the same story and the same bias. I said they are written from the effort to emphasize uh, the African-Americans in U.S. history. And most of them didn't even bother to look at both texts. They came up and took the college-level text. <laughs> one, kid, <laughs> one kid took the ninth grade. And I went, when I did that, I thought, oh, God, they're going to be so frustrated. Um, and, and I said to them, I said, now, if you want to switch, you can switch. I said, there will be no judgment. I said, I want you to be comfortable with the material. 
none of them gave up. And the kid who took the ninth grade book came back and got a college one. Nice. And a couple of them, they were almost proud. They came up and they said, I had to get my mother to buy me a dictionary so I could read this book. (laughs) So I read it with the dictionary next to me. And I said, that's okay. I said, if it's working, that's all that counts. But we had some wonderful discussions. I mean, the class only lasted about half a year. And I don't know what happened to it the next year. Um, What I really wanted to have happen was to be able to offer a class called U.S. History from the African-American Perspective Mm. and have it scheduled during the day. But it's really hard to schedule a single section class because there are too many things like band and choir and foreign language, you know, that where, you know, once a kid's locked into one thing, they can't get into another. Mm -hmm. And so it fell apart, but it was a very rewarding thing to do, um, you know, personally. And I think, you know, those kids, um, it took a couple of weeks, but they actually started saying hello to me in the hall, you know, and stopping me and saying, (laughs) hi, how are you? And it's like, well, good. How are you? Um, And so that was, I think, you know, I did a little bit to make them feel more welcome at Edina High School. That's amazing. Do you remember what year that was? Oh, wow. Um, Oh, two, oh, three, maybe somewhere in that vicinity. Wow. The reason that I ask is because, you know, this sounds like you are integrating a school in the 60s in the South. And this is a (laughs) school in the very North uh, in in 2000s. And that is something that I've had to have conversations with people about as well, is that, you know, there there's almost this there's no reason for people to pivot and look at anything from a different perspective. And we've been teaching the same biases over and over again. I didn't even know that there was a U.S. history book from the African-American perspective. Um, There's a wonderful, it's a two-volume set. I'm sure it's still around. It's called the African-American Odyssey. Hmm. Definitely. And then the other one was called the African-American Experience, I think. It was much shorter, much easier to read. Um, The African-American Odyssey was much more thorough. That was the college text. Hmm. Okay. Do you, were you able to get some of the white students at Edina to join the class as well? Yes. During their lunch. Yeah, they did. The, the, my white students didn't come as regularly. Um, but for a lot of them, they were already giving up their lunch hour. Like they were the band people who were in orchestra. Hmm. And so they gave up their lunch to play their horn with the violins already. Um, and so they might not have, and I didn't think about that when I tried to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now, and I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't want to say it for sure, but Edina has gone on a, on a different kind of schedule, not only because of the pandemic, but before that. Um, and I know that one of the things that did get added 
was an African-American history class. Wow. Nice. And I don't know whether it survived, okay, but mm-hmm. I know that it got offered. Yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of things when I was there, it would have been really good to have just this other way of, of looking at things because I'll, I'll share with you. And I honestly don't remember my history teacher. I wish it was you. Uh, I don't remember her name. And I do remember we were talking about the Dred Scott decision for all of five minutes. And she said, yeah, slavery was awful. Right, Deanna? <laughs> I was like, Ugh. oh, I'm my God, the only the only black girl in the class. I'm from, you know, a lot of these students grew up together. So I'm the outsider. And now I'm on the spot. Yeah. And now you're supposed to represent an entire group of people. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? This is (laughs) and this is not, you know, a unique thing when you are the only somewhere. And this is echoed throughout college and, and professionally. When you are the only something, you do have to speak for all of the yeah, and, and that's totally and completely unfair. It's like, well, here in Belize, you know, all of a sudden I'm supposed to speak for all Americans, you know, and it's like right now with Trump in office, that's worst thing on earth I want to do. But um, <laughs> and as I said, out in the Osseo district, I taught. Well, in fact, it turned out I turned into the the ninth grade of choice in social studies for almost all of the kids of color because my two colleagues were actually bigots. Um, And I didn't blame the kids for wanting, not wanting to be in their classrooms. That has been kind of a, a thing that is known in many school districts around the country that sometimes students of color, black students are being taught by people who don't respect them. Not sure if you know, but for a while I taught, Um, here in New York at college, at different colleges. And there was so little representation. I mean, I'm in New York. There was so little representation in the faculty that I I took it upon myself to change the way we were going to do things. Instead of reading, you know, Wordsworth or Shakespeare, who I I could read all day, uh, we read you know, Paula Marshall and James Baldwin and things that would actually resonate with the demographic of students I'm teaching. Um, right. Let's read a little Langston Hughes while we're at it. Yeah. They're still <laughs> getting the information. They're still learning how to, you know, d- develop their critical thinking skills, write their research papers. But now they have more of an interest in what they are reading in order right. to do this. I think that lack of representation, not just in faculty, but also in the canon in the materials that are, you know, you're considered educated if you understand European history, but not necessarily if you understand African history. Um, right. And that is one of the things that uh, that exists now that didn't exist when you were in high school is a course called Advanced Placement World History. And it is truly global. It includes the empires of Africa, the Indian empires, the Chinese empires, um, it's a fast, I only got to teach it for a couple of years, but I would have, not gladly, I mean, I love Dave Bush, but oh man, that world with the, with the variety of perspectives was just so much fun to teach and so much fun to watch the kids go, oh, wow, <laughs> huh, 
Um, and, and even some of the things that I learned preparing to teach the class, because I, I don't know, in college, I probably had a couple of Asian history classes. I don't think I had an African history class, even though, well, I was <coughs> at a major in U.S. history. That's true. But I, um, I don't ever remember seeing in the catalog, of course, in African history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that things have changed. And the, the literature canon has definitely changed. It's been a huge fight. And it remains a huge fight in the Edina schools. There is a group of, I'm sorry, bigoted parents who don't understand why their students should read Toni Morrison and James Baldwin or um, Chinua Chibi's Things Fall Apart or anything like Mm -hmm. that. You know, they should be reading Mark Twain and, oh, God, the Scarlet Letter and, oh, (laughs) yeah there are things that just continue to have that bias you know reading telling students telling young people who they can look up to who they can admire and who they can see represented in art and literature has a long-term effect yeah I think it's important for teachers of all levels to really understand that, you know, it's not just good for students of color. It's good for white students as well to understand how big the world is and how many different cultures there are and to understand what's happening, you know, in India and knowing who Hannibal was and all of this stuff that isn't necessarily taught, especially. Right. And it needs, and it does, it needs to go all the way down to kindergarten. And, and I hope, you know, I lived through, the 1960s. I mean, the Detroit riot was in 1967, not even the one caused by Martin Luther King's assassination. The one the summer before was caused by white cops who raided a neighborhood party. And the police report, you know, no video cameras then, no cell phone cameras. Um, the police report said that it was what they called a blind pig which was a term for an illegal after-hours bar. So the charge was that this group of African-Americans were selling liquor in their basement. Well, all the research I've read when I did my master's degree, uh, it was just a little simple, perhaps a little too noisy, neighborhood party. Hmm. And, you know, pretty soon it's a full-blown riot that lasted three days officially killed 39 people, probably a whole lot more than that. And place with a Detroit police force that had not a single African-American officer. Hmm. That is spooky because that is definitely happening now. We are seeing it happening now with, I mean, I'm in New York and these, the way that they were enforcing social distancing um, in black areas versus more predominantly white areas was completely different. You wouldn't think that these were both areas in New York. In one section, you know, if it's 
And I've seen it personally. There were three teenagers, black teenagers standing on the corner and I think three squad cars pulled up for three teenagers. Um, and they were rough with them, questioning them first. And what are you doing here? And all of this. And they said it's because social distancing, they weren't social distancing. But then there were videos of people in Williamsburg parks who white people were not social distancing and the police were handing out masks and just saying, you guys need to be careful. Yeah. And that is to tell you that, you know, that riot in Detroit in the sixties looks very similar to things happening in Brooklyn in 2020. The one thing that I do see that is different from both the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties and the riots the protests of the 60s, there are more white faces in the street this time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and and that is, you know, it's sort of like, to me, a glimmer of hope that, um, that, that this time, maybe Whitey gets it, um, and that maybe... Um, but it's not going to be easy. I mean, you've got a Mitch McConnell and a Senate who has no intention of doing anything. And in Minnesota, we have a Republican-controlled state Senate that is unwilling to even consider banning chokeholds. Hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know... The struggle continues, except this time I do think there is, there are more different kinds of people who get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think the reason for that is that we are seeing so many groups joining this? I mean, it's called the Black Lives Matter movement. It's definitely about the way that we've been treated, but I think this resonates in, with so many other groups. What do you think is the reason for people, you know, who are not necessarily personally affected by these things to go out into the streets? I want to believe that that education over the last 20 years or so has impacted people. Um, I posted today, you should go look, I posted an essay, I think it came through, I think I might have picked it up off the nation, Um, but it's an essay by that African, he's still, in my mind, he looks like he's 12. He's probably 40 something. He said he has a wife and two kids. His name is Tore, T-O-U-R-E. And he wrote a piece about making the decision and he lives where you do. He lives in Brooklyn. about making the decision to go out to the streets. And I actually just pulled it up by Torre. Um, There's a part where he says something that I believe is probably why so many people decided to to get out into the streets. Um, He was talking about being quarantined and, you know, you weren't supposed to go outside. And he says, what if I brought the virus back home to my wife and two kids? How could I go out with the crowd and stay safe medically? But another voice popped up how could you not go? This yeah. is too important. I've been afraid of the coronavirus for three months, but I've been afraid of getting killed by the police for four decades. Yes. 
yes, that was extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Even, um, I'm not sure if it was actually from the CDC or a CDC employee was like, there's a bigger threat. Um, to to black lives than coronavirus. So yeah, <laughs> this is this is definitely something that that people need to get involved in. It is global, it's expansive, and it doesn't look like it's the protests aren't really going to stop anytime soon. Unfortunately, this is not the first time it's happened. I can't even say it will be the last because since the protests, there have there have been other murders. Um, but I am glad that you are able to see what's going on, that you you have this perspective, but also that even prior to all of this, you've done your part in helping in the education, helping to change perspectives, minds, hearts, and really get people to shift themselves and understand things that, although it doesn't directly affect you today, it may affect somebody you'll know or that your kids will know. We have to get better. I don't know how, but we have to. Yeah. Or I, I don't like to consider the alternative. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lonnie, I appreciate your time. This has been wonderful. Um, it was a really, pleasure. It really was. Yeah. I, you know, I always enjoy hearing different takes on things, but, you know, and, and finding out more about your history and education. I mean, I knew you for a few years uh, when Antoinette was yeah. your host student, but <laughs> your host yeah. daughter. But it is so great to hear that you are still, I mean, now off up in Belize-ish island, uh, <laughs> that you are still continuing. Called Amber Grist Key. Amber Grist Key, that's it. Uh, that you're still continuing to help in the way that you know best in education and helping people just get a better chance and access to things. This is wonderful, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Lonnie. Thank you for reaching out, Deanna. Have a great rest of the day, and go fix the world, would you please? (laughs) I'm on it. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. Honestly, I could listen to her talk for hours. Why was she never my teacher? (laughs) Yeah, she was so inventive and creative in, you know, making sure that she had course materials and an environment that was great and inclusive so that all of the students could learn and they could all achieve. That is amazing. That's what a teacher is supposed to do. Yeah, she's definitely one of the good ones. I've, I've been to Minnesota once and I actually went to Minneapolis. And I saw a lot of Black people, but I also saw a lot of poverty. Um, and poverty and racism and all in the same place is just igniting a bomb. Absolutely. Especially when you think about where she was teaching, where I went to school in Edina, Minnesota, was a very affluent neighborhood. And it's just a few miles away from where you touched down in Minneapolis. Well, that was pretty heavy. And that was a lot but I think I'm ready to rave. I want to shake it off. Do it. Okay. I'm going to choose. Speaking of all this history, I think we should definitely go straight to shadow Columbus slide.
looks much older than Adam and Eve. Columbus lie, Columbus lie, Columbus lie, Columbus lie, lie, lie. He said he discovered the whole of America. He never tell nobody how we had to run from Apache. Columbus lie, Columbus lie. Columbus lies so bad I believe Columbus was mad The man with the Santa Maria Was as brave as a man can be He sailed on to Venezuela for another discovery He said he discovered new lands and he thought that I wouldn't know He discovered a lot of Indians who discovered the lands before Columbus lie, Columbus lie, Columbus lie, Columbus lie, 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 lie. Oh wow, <laughs> he did it again, that's a really appropriate tone <laughs> I'm, I'm on a roll. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I will confess. In this moment, in this moment, I personally feel like it is my responsibility to teach myself about my own history and to teach my child uh, about his, his history. Because in America, I just don't feel like we get all sides of the story. So I, I'm, I'm taking that as my uh, personal work to do. Absolutely. You know, some of the books that she mentioned, you know, I didn't know that there was a U.S. history from the African-American perspective, but that is definitely something that should absolutely be taught, especially when you're thinking of younger children. You know, you want people to, to see themselves represented throughout history and in all media. Yeah. I'd love to know from our followers, um, what are you doing in this moment? Are you educating yourself? Are you educating others and your family, your friends? Um, do you feel like that's necessary right now? Mm-hmm. Make sure you give us a comment, but also make sure you are following us. Follow Soka Say So on all social media or go to SokaSaySo.com. Follow this chick on all social media or go to D-Y-S-C-H-I-C-K.com. And make sure you subscribe to BK Rants and Rave. Okay, bye.